Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. Well, as promised in my last episode, I am at the Conservative Grace Brethren Churches International National Conference, and I have an opportunity to do some interviews with some of our uh, fellowship missionaries. So today I have with me my dear friend, Craig Noyce. Craig? Hey, Jonathan. Glad to be here. Thanks. Good. I'm glad that you could be here, too. This is He's actually my first uh, test subject for interviewing, so we're going to see how this goes today. I think it's going to go great. Craig, do you remember when we first met? Oh, man, like the very first time? Uh, I don't know. Was it at the chapel uh, when you were in town? I think the first time we met was actually doing a youth conference together in 2006 at uh, Antiochian Village. Okay. Do you remember that? I remember doing youth conference with you, yeah. D- Dave Blevins was the, uh, was the pastor okay. who was leading the youth conference that year. And that's the first time I recall meeting you. You've met thousands of more people than I have, so your memory might, uh, might be a little fuzzier on that. What I remember is that you were really uptight, and you were slowly coming out of unwinding down and having fun. Like, hey, Jonathan can have fun. Yeah, well, we have our uh, mutual friend Mike Vodica to thank for that. <laughs> yeah, he's a corrupting influence on everyone. <laughs> Mike is a corrupting influence on everyone, <laughs> yeah. in, in a real good way. Um, yeah, and so that was 2006, and here we are, 2019, 13 years later, um, I went through the CGBCI schools of theology, and you also did too. Did yeah. Uh, what year did you graduate? Do you remember? Yes, uh, 2016. Okay, I graduated yeah. in in 12, and I know your practorium was extended a little bit longer because yeah. you did some uh, missionary training in the midst of that as well. And I did almost the first eight years was basically one class at a time. Oh wow! So yeah, and then doing ministry and school, um, uh, right? Practorium, ministry, and work. Construction work. So. so it is possible for people to get through the practorium one class at a time. It just takes longer, and it takes real sacrifice. Yeah, it takes longer. Uh, I started when I was 18, and so that helped. Uh, but as we were looking at going to the mission field, uh, it, it was good to just plot along for a while. And uh, the life experience that I got and the work education was invaluable. So, Craig, how— um... Well, let me ask you this. When did you feel called to go to the mission field, and how did you know that that's what God wanted you to do? Sure. Well, when I was 14, um, next to salvation, something that happened when I was 14, I would say is the most significant moment in my life. Um, I had heard a sermon on Romans 12, 1 and 2, and was really convicted that uh, I was a believer— but I wasn't living like I was a believer. I had a single question in my life. What do I want to do with my life? That's what people ask me all the time. And it's just fundamentally the wrong question. Instead of what do I want? What does God want for my life? And so that idea of laying my life down as a living sacrifice, that I have no rights. I'm his slave. I'm his servant. And my life should be singularly focused on pleasing him, really came crashing down on me. And I made a commitment, Lord, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. And it wasn't long after that, that the desire for mission started to grow. And all through high school and missionaries would come, I'd be really interested in what they have to say, and I'd want to ask them questions and spend time with them. And the church we went to did a lot of door-to-door evangelism, and I'd always want to go with them. And that desire just kept growing and growing, and uh, wise people around me, as I talked to them about it, said, yeah, I can see you doing that. That's a good thing. 
Uh, the Bible's clear on the need for it, the need for people to go. I had a desire to do it. Uh, I'm no genius, but I, you know, I basic communication skills and intelligence to be able to learn a language and things like that. Nothing to exclude me from doing it. And uh, finally, I'm an analytical person. I like to just see things from every possible angle to try to figure out what's going on. And uh, between 11th and 12th grade in high school, I had heard a sermon at a Christian camp. And the, the, the preacher just made a simple statement. If God wants you to do something, just do it. Just do it. Don't overthink it. Do it. And I, I, it's like something clicked. I thought, you know what? The scripture's clear on what needs to be done. I have the desire to do it. There's opportunity. Wise people are directing me that way. So why wouldn't I do it? And so the question moved from, should I do it, to why wouldn't I do it? It's a good thing. And I said, Lord, if you, as you open the doors, I will follow you on the foreign mission field. And ever since that day, it's just been crystal clear, okay, that's the direction I'm going to go. And uh, yeah, it was very broad to begin with. And it's a long story how God faithfully narrowed that down as we've gone and continues to do so. Yeah, I think I remember the first time that, you know, we had been friends for a few years, but I remember the first time that you really like coherently put this together for me and for the other pastors who were there at our church in Gibsonburg, I think it was 2009. We hadn't moved to our new building yet. And you would just come, uh, you were visiting us, I think, after National Conference, because we had it in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And you came, and, and I don't know if you stayed with me or Mike, but you were with us that time. And you said, you know, I, I have this desire to accomplish this goal, but I just need you guys to pray that the Lord will open the doors and make things happen. And that was 2009. That's the first time I really remember that. And through that point, at that point, you weren't married, mm -hmm. and I don't even think you were dating your current wife, Sarah. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was just like, all right, well, let's lift this up in prayer and see where, see where the Lord opens doors. And it's amazing how from 2009 to basically 2016, when you, you graduated from the Practorium that year, mm -hmm. did you also graduate from the Missionary Training Center that year, or was that the year before? Uh, 13, 14, 15. I graduated, I graduated from the missionary training program in 14, and I graduated from the advanced linguistics program in 15. Okay. So you graduated from the missionary training school, and then you finished the practorium, and it's like, okay, now I'm, I'm ready to go, mm -hmm. ready to go. And what an incredible series of events that brought that about, and we don't have time to talk about necessarily all of those things. What would you say through that period of time where you were going through training mm -hmm. and preparing for the field was the most difficult lesson that God was teaching you? Throughout the preparation time? Sure. Before the I got to the field. The preparation time before you got to the field. I would say, I mean, the most difficult lesson, the most difficult thing was support raising. <laughs> the scariest thing. Uh, and, and how so? Can, give me a, give the listeners an idea of why support raising is so scary or terrifying. Well, it's all in my own head because I, I really, my wife and I really love people mm -hmm. and we both in a healthy way value our reputation with them. And as an inherent weakness that I have, I put an overemphasis on how other people view me. And from a, just a culture that values hard work and self-reliance to my big fear is somebody's going to think I'm mooching money off them, like I'm using them. And so the idea that one of my friends might even have the passing thought that I am trying to use them for something is almost a crippling fear. It's almost like 
you know, you don't want people to see you and think, oh, here I get to listen to Craig's sales pitch again. You know, you yeah. don't, you do, I mean, that... Or anything even remotely involved with that. Right, right. You want to have genuine relationships, but the uh, need for support raising somehow colors the opportunity to have genuine relationships, or it's it can seem to color that because people don't know, like, are you investing in me because I'm your friend or are you investing in me because you want the money? And, you know... Okay, for me personally, I'm on the other side of that, right? I am supporting you. Mm -hmm. So, but when I see you, I don't ever feel that, okay, Craig's just giving me a sales pitch or he's going to ask me now or it's a pressure environment. In fact, you've gone uh, above and beyond to be very communicative and saying, you know what? If you can support me, that's fine. If you can't, that's fine. I'm, I'm interested in our friendship because I love you and I am committed to the same goals that you're committed to. And we're both, obviously, we're both pastors so the goals that we have are making disciples, uh, seeing people one to the Lord, seeing sheep mature into uh, Christ-like believers. And so we share all of those things in common. And so I would say, you know, from my perspective, I don't feel like, you know, it's ever a sales pitch type thing. Mm -hmm. But I could see where, if I was in your shoes, I would definitely have that same fear. It's just, a, it's ubiquitous. I can only think of one of my fellow missionaries that said he was excited about the support raising phase. And there's something wrong with that guy. <laughs> He's from California. So. Uh, we won't make any California jokes. <laughs> oh, yeah. The support raising aspect of things uh, would definitely be terrifying to me. I, I know that I have kind of dabbled in personal sales, and I just, I just didn't like that. Um, so I could see where that would be terrifying. Now, what did God teach you through that? He has reminded me, so, so there are many times where somebody has sacrificially given to us, either they're a person who I'm pretty sure is not well off, or it's, it's a substantial gift, and it's, I, I actually struggle with a feeling of shame, like, why would this person do this for me? Like, I don't deserve this. What if I mess up? And, and then they could have used this for retirement or for their own kids, and ah, that's just like, it starts to put a load on my shoulders, and I have to stop and say, wait, wait, they didn't give that to me. They gave that to the Lord. They're not doing this because of me. They're doing this for the Lord's work. And God never, ever intended for this to be the Craig show, where I'm the one doing everything. I'm literally one piece of this. And hundreds of people, thousands really, make up the other pieces of it. And so that's a very freeing thing. And I can say, I don't need to say thank you for giving that to us. Thank you for giving that to the Lord. That, that's a really beautiful thing. That's a great perspective to take it from. Because it, it could seem overwhelming when you get those gifts. And the temptation to pride is there like, oh yeah, people love me. Or people love my family or whatever it is. But that's a great reminder, I think, for all Christians who are giving. That when you're giving to your local church or whether you're giving to the missionary it's the Lord's work that you're trying to accomplish. It's for a greater purpose than self-glorification. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank you for sharing that reminder. One of the other big lessons that I've learned is, uh, I'm jumping ahead chronologically a little bit, but before I went to the field the first time, I would have said, we have great training, we have great coworkers, we have a great uh, organization that's helping get us there, uh, and God has opened the doors to do these things. And after a couple of years on the field and facing the realities there and some of the biggest trials of my life, as we are getting ready to go back for our second term, all I can say is God has opened the doors for us to do these things. Uh, in 
reading in Judges about Gideon, and God just says to Gideon, if I let you do it with this many people, you might be tempted to think you did it in your own strength. And that, when I read that a couple months ago, it just rang through my mind. I'm not saying I ever claimed to have done all this stuff in my own strength, but the temptation was there when enough people say, hey, that's really good training you have, or you can articulate things well. I don't know, maybe, well, maybe I'm part of it, I don't know. And uh, man, God humbled me in that. And uh, the only reason we're on the mission field is God's opened the door. Now, we do have good training, but that doesn't save people. That doesn't get us to the field. We do have great coworkers. We do have a great platform to be there, but it's more obvious than ever that God is the one who has opened doors for us to be on the field. What you said is a great reminder um, and a really a, good, a challenge to American Christianity because Americans in general, we have a cultural mentality that like if you follow steps A, B, C, mm-hmm. and D, or if you do this process over here, or if you imitate somebody else, then there will be these fantastic results that come about because of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we live in a free market, capitalistic society, and the examples of how to basically gain wealth and self-achievement, uh, self-glorification, are they're all over the place in our culture. And it's really easy for that mentality to filter into missions work as well. Like, okay, here's my steps. Bang, 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 bang. Oh, I did all those things, and so now here's the result that I want, a church, you know? It- the tempt- so then the, in the school of thought for missions that I'm in and the culture that I'm in, there is a great risk at finding my confidence and faith in methodology. Now, I am a firm and passionate believer in good methodology, in good sure. strategy, in careful planning and thinking ahead. And Jesus said, you know, that that's what you do. You count the cost before mm-hmm. you build a building. So yeah. all the methodology, all the strategy, we consider that as part of counting the cost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it needs to be done. But the inherent risk is then, well, okay, there's chaos going on. I'm scared. I feel overwhelmed. I'm not sure what the future is. But as long as I do the plan, I'll be okay. Man, that's that's just not a good place to be. As long as I'm faithful to following the Lord, that's where I'll be okay. And that's just a tension that we have to live in. It's an inherent uh, risk of some good things. Yeah, yeah. And... um our culture struggles with that in a certain way. Other cultures might struggle with attention in a different way. Mm-hmm. But we just have to be cognizant and aware of our, our weaknesses, our limitations, and our cultural expectations that we place upon things. Now, we've been going for about 15 minutes, and I haven't even asked you where you're going yet. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> everybody knows you're a missionary going somewhere. Tell us a little bit about where you are going sure. and why you chose that particular place. Sure. Our family spent the last two years in the country of Papua New Guinea, which is just north of Australia, and we'll be going back there. We hope to be there for 10 to 15 years to be part of a church planting and Bible translation ministry among an unreached people or least reached people group in uh, the Finisterre Range. You can look that up on Google and Wikipedia. There's information about that part of the country. Yeah, it's really cool. If you type in Finisterre Mountains, um, Papua New Guinea, uh, the Google Maps take you right there, and you can see in 3D view the kind of terrain and the area that you'll be going to. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really gorgeous place. Regarding why we chose Papua New Guinea, uh, this kind of goes along with the leading to go into missions at all. Uh, some missionaries will say, I, I had a specific call, or a call for a specific geographical area. God's called me to China or Turkey or Brazil or something like that. We've never had that experience. We felt like and see in Scripture the need for missionaries to go and do church planting and evangelism. And so we said, Lord, 
we're going to walk forward and try our best. Uh, let me back up a second. Well, our prayer was this. Lord, either put a specific place on our heart to go or give us wisdom to choose the best place to go that will set us up for success, humanly speaking. And so as we looked at all the countries in the world, there were a lot of places that tugged on our heart, but as we looked at our family and our team and our gifts and skill sets and place in life, we said, unless God puts it on our heart to go to X country, let's choose a place where we think we have the best chance to succeed. And so it really boiled down to Papua New Guinea and another country. And with PNG, there's something really unique about it. There's over 100 tribes that have communicated mission organizations like the one we're with and asked for missionaries to come. So culturally, it's wide open for the gospel to come in. And politically, it's wide open. While expensive, it's easy to get visas and to be there, relatively speaking. And so the iron is hot. It will not always be that way. Culturally, it'll shut down. Politically, it'll shut down. Financially, we may not be able to go to a place like that. It's one of the most expensive places to go be a missionary because of the remoteness of it. So, so talk a little bit about that. Like, um, you know, you and I have had, I mean, hours and hours of discussion. So when you say the remoteness of it, I get everything that you're saying. But sure. for the listeners, kind of give them an idea of what makes it so remote? What makes it so challenging there for the average American? What, what could they sure. expect? <clears throat> for any of the audience who's been to West Africa, this might make some sense to you. I like to say, and I spent some time there, in West Africa, the roads are bad. In Papua New Guinea, they don't have roads. So there is just, it's, it's just a long ways behind most of the rest of the world. There is a severe lack of infrastructure. So in the part of the country we're going to, there are no roads. There's no power. There's, no, there's hardly, a, if you want to call it a school program, it's basically non-existent. Um, they're remote village life remote tribal people spread out through mountains that go from sea level to 14,000 feet in less than 30 miles uh, in a place of the world where the outsiders didn't even know anybody existed in those mountains till 19, the mid-1930s. Wow. Yeah. It, wow. It's one of the least explored parts of the entire world, uh, minus the ocean, you know, as far as land goes. And um, it, the, the national slogan is the land of the unexpected. And uh, it, just in the city that we were in, it's a city. It's one of the largest cities in the country where we spent the last year on the coral reef that surrounds the city where I got to spend a lot of time spearfishing and snorkeling and stuff in my free time. There was a marine biology expedition sometime in the last 10 years for just, I think, a couple days, maybe a week, and they discovered something like 29 new species of shrimp in that one expedition just on that reef. I was in a dive shop, and it showed a chart of all the shrimp they discovered on that one trip. So there's... Wow. It's the lack of infrastructure is the primary reason why it's so remote, as well as there's about 830 different languages. And you combine the lack of... Infrastructure doesn't just move stuff, it moves ideas. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And so no roads, no way to get things around easily, and 800 plus languages and very remote, rugged terrain, and you've got ideas that don't move around a lot, languages that don't move around a lot. So it's very diverse. All right, so in that diverse climate, with all of those languages, how are you going to break into a tribe? Talk about the process of breaking into a tribe. Sure. It will start with doing a, a survey. So there's a number of criteria we'll go down. Wait, before you go to the survey part, like, yeah. okay, so you get to the country, PNG, okay. and you got to go to the supermarket and buy some food. Mm-hmm. Can you do that? I mean, uh, can you communicate with the the cashier or whoever is selling the food? Or what do you have? Is there a, something that you have to do before that? Well, we need to learn the trade language. Okay. Yeah. 
So talk about that for right. a minute. In, in PNG, there's three official languages. English, which about 3% of the population speaks. Motu, which only the southeastern corner of the language speaks, of the country speaks. And Tokpisin, which uh, pretty much every man in the country speaks. And in the cities, everybody speaks. And in the villages, which is where most people live, um, depending on their the access to the outside would depend on how much the women speak it. So we need to learn Tokpisin, which is an English Creole. All right, and how far... Uh, earlier in the podcast, you mentioned that you've been over there for a couple of years, mm -hmm. um, and our timeline's kind of gone a little bit back yeah, and forth. But that. no, that's not a, that's just whatever. Um, have you learned Tokpasin well? Yeah, before me go lo PNG, me no sabe Tokpasin. That's all now. Me PNG man straight, yeah. What so, did you say to me? <laughs> uh, I, said, I have a giant nose hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I said before I didn't know pigeon, but now I I know it, and I've become a real PNG man. Oh, Which I say that jokingly because that's what they'll say to you to butter you up. You know, oh, you're a real PNG man now. <laughs> that's good. They just want more money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh, Make some friends. That's good. That's yeah. good. Okay, so you know, you know, Tokpisin, mm -hmm. the trade language, very well. Mm -hmm. um, how about your wife and children? Yeah, my wife knows Tokpisin. I know it better than her just because after we checked out a language study, she went to more of a stay-at-home mom role. And the support role that I was in had me using it every day. Okay. Um, doing all a very diverse things. So it pushed me up further in the language, including teaching. That was a real stretcher. Excellent. Excellent. And the kids, uh, they don't think they know it, uh, but they do understand concrete talk piss in. Just this morning, we were in the hotel lobby and Solomon was reaching to grab something. And I said, um, Lucy. And he stopped immediately and came back. Uh, but I think it's funny because my theory is for little kids, he doesn't think about what languages are out there. It's all just one language. It's just communication. Right. right. It's just communication. Like he knows that that word means stop or, yeah, or let go, yeah. let go or don't do that or yeah. whatever, you know, whatever the uh, translation would be. Right. And children don't think in terms of English, Spanish, French. Right. He's not compartmentalizing. It's no, just he doesn't. Language. Right. Right. Yeah. It's just communication. So it's really fun. They'll, we, we were at a table and somebody said, Shia, do you know talk percentage? She said, no. And then I said a phrase to her, and she did what I said, and so it's just <laughs> funny. So, but it's only very simple, concrete things. They don't speak it, but they do understand quite a bit. They'll learn it very quickly if they're immersed into it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Excellent. All right, so you first learned that trade language, and you've been over there for two years now, and you've done that. You're now here back on furlough. You're planning to go back in August. So now talk about what's the process. When you go back in August or September of this year, what's the process for choosing a people in which to go try to plant a church? Sure. Broadly speaking, there's a region of the country that we're going to be choosing from, the Finisterre region, those mountains and the surrounding area. We have gone over virtually all the out information that exists already on the outside. That is uh, reports and satellite images and talk to people who've worked in those areas to find out what tribes are there and what's going on and, and as much information as we can from the outside, and we've narrowed it down to about 10 different tribes that we are interested in that we think might be a good fit for our team and that has a need for the kind of work that we're going to do. So then we've prioritized them, and Josh and I are going to go do a survey trip. So if, if at all possible, we will try to let the people know we're coming, although that may not be possible, and we'll show up, and we'll spend a couple of days with them. And because of PNG Hospitality, They'll take us right in and take care of us. They'll feed us and they'll show us around. And, and uh, the kinds of things we're going to be evaluating will be, is the gospel present? Is there an in-group impact? Are there any people who believe in that language already that are trying to reach their own people? Is there an out-group impact? Are there other mission organizations or bodies trying to reach in? 
language vitality. There's indicators of the health of the language because in many places in the world, traditional languages are dying. Okay. And in some places, the trade language is the best language to reach people because oh, it's okay. at a critical mass, and that's not the language that is primarily used. The, tri the tribal language is no longer the primary language. Those aren't, while work should be done there, those are the kind of places that they can reach themselves more easily, believers in PNG. We're looking to go to the places that are cut off from the gospel. That is, the tribal language is robust, looks like we'll be around for a long time, and because of that, they're isolated from the gospel. And so we're going to try to evaluate the health of the language. And then we need to determine, do they really want us to be there? And if they were to outright say, we don't want you to be here, that would be exceptional. It's very unlikely that would happen. Rather, we would be looking for indicators on what they're actually interested in. Do they offer us land to build the house? Do they offer timber for us to use? Do they bring us food while we're there? Or do they kind of ignore us? Do they try to sell us the lumber? And, you know, are they trying to take advantage of us that way? So those are indicators of their actual level of interest in spiritual things and having us there. So do they view like land ownership, tree ownership, do they view ownership of the property around their village and their homes in the same way that Americans view ownership or do, how do they think about it? They know not the same way as Americans. They have far stronger ideas and connection to their ground. So in, in animistic tribal cultures, usually their beliefs are tied to the physical ground that they live on. So you could have a, a tribe, say 10 square miles or whatever, probably bigger than that, and they have beliefs about who the creator spirits are and the spirits of the trees and how the dead ancestors work and how you communicate with them. And just 10 miles over, there may be a different set of rules for that physical plot of ground. And even if from our Western mind there's mutual exclusive ideas being presented, that's fine for them because those are the rules that apply there. So, I mean, land ownership is, from what I can tell in my limited experience, the most fundamental right of a PNG person. Okay, so the, the fact that they would then offer you a place to live on their land mm -hmm. would be a major indicator that they want you to come and be with them. Well, and of course, to be clear, they're not giving us the land. We would be living there. Um, I don't know. I, I'd have to, it probably depends on how they're going about doing it. Okay. Are they, do they want us there to see us just as a resource or is it more in a hospitable kind of way? Okay. So I think I need to be there longer to answer that more fully. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. I think it's good for our audience to understand that, you know, the way that they treat the land um, and the way that they would allow you to interact on their land does have a big part to play in their hospitality towards you, their invitation towards you. Mm -hmm. That's a fair statement. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're guests there. I mean, it's helpless guests. It's not like you show up and you're like, hey, where's the nearest real estate agent? And you go and buy a plot of land and you oh, start right. doing this project. You oh, just right. don't, and, you don't do that. And we don't go and say, hey, we want to live there. That's not how it works. Uh, one of the things that we want to model from the very beginning, provided it doesn't cause us to violate our consciences or scripture, is submit to the existing authority of the villages. Uh, they need to see that we're not the great white saviors. And, and so that takes us to like a Romans 13 principle, submitting mm -hmm. to the governing authorities, mm -hmm. you know, where you can, not in violation of Scripture. Right. Exactly. And we need to work very hard to do that. So when we go to find language helpers, it's far healthier for the long term for the church if they see us submitting to authority. And instead of us going and going to find someone to teach us the language, we go to the village leaders and say, hey, can you give us some guidance and wisdom on who might be helpful. Now, we need to give back and forth input because they might give us a guy with no front teeth and 
you know, with a weird accent. Right, right. Use Jim over there. Well, maybe somebody else. But but that example of submission needs to be there because they need to see how to submit. They need to see us submitting to the Lord and to others because we are not Johnny Answer Man. We don't have all the answers. God has the answers. And we cannot be famous in their eyes. God must be famous in their eyes. Craig, it sounds like you've got a lot of work to do when you get back into the country. Um, and Lord willing, he'll give you uh, real clear direction on which tribe to pick. Mm-hmm. And we trust that the Spirit of God will go before you and open those doors. Now, how are you going to accomplish this alone? Well, I wouldn't be. That would, that would be impossible. Good. I set you up for that yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. So t- take a few moments to tell, tell us who you're partnering with to accomplish this particular goal. Sure. Uh, some of the people we're partnering with would be Josh and Autumn Miller. They are friends of ours and have been for a long time. And they will be working as another unit on the team. Doing, We'll be doing everything together. And yeah. And so Josh and Autumn are currently in the process of support raising. Mm-hmm. Um, they are planning to come, Lord willing, in January of 2020. Mm-hmm. All right. Is there anybody else who's going to be a part of your team? Yeah. There'll be a, a single lady who will be assisting us in the tribe. She has a master's degree in literacy and has gone through all the same training as us and um, has been a long-term friend of ours. We've been through a lot with her both ways, and uh, she should be a big asset to, uh, to us as well. And then broader, in, even beyond that, there'll be people living in the city assisting with logistical and government paperwork and um, security evaluations and accounting and supply buying. And that was the role that I did my second year in country. I was that guy in the city doing whatever it took to keep people in the bush and you can't be in the bush without somebody there. Right. So the, the team, How, how many will, people do you think down. overall it requires to keep you in the bush? Oh, man. You know, just, when you think about, like, not, not counting supporters, obviously, not necessarily um, counting all the folks in America, but, like, in field, in country, sure. like, how many people are part of that team? Quite a bit. There's our immediate team on the field. There's the at least one person, probably more, in the city doing supply work and accounting and all that other stuff. There's all the aviators. Our, the organization that we're going under doesn't have aviation, but there's two other organizations that are happy to let us use theirs. So all the aviators, medical doctors, there's homeschool consultants, there's culture and language consultants. So you're looking at a team of, you know, 25 to 75 people. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, just if you were going to name every job, you could get to 25, between oh, 25 yeah. and 75 jobs. When you look further down the chain, I mean, yeah, well, the people that, who does it take to keep the aviators going? <laughs> yeah, a support crew. It, it, it can't go from there. Yeah. Right. And who's doing the inspections and training and the, the certifica- certifying for those mechanics that lets the pilots fly, that brings the stuff in that we need and does medical evacuations? And on down the list, it goes on a really long way. So there are opportunities for service in PNG outside of being in the bush and planning a church in a, in a bush village. Oh, yeah. I, I believe that when you look at the New Testament, the Great Commission was given, and how was it obeyed? They planted churches all throughout the world. And you look at Revelation, and you see that the letters to the churches, the, the local church is the center of God's plan right now in working to glorify Jesus. And so I think missions should be directly working towards and involved with church planting. But that includes the necessary, uh, the doctor is doing that. Now, I'm not trying to comment on, on other organizations that they would benefit from them very well. I'm just saying, yes, there are ways to meaningfully be involved with biblical church planting ministry, even if the gifts God has given you aren't directly in Bible teaching 
and as a pastor and as a church planter. All right, can I ask you to just give us a brief definition of what is church planting and what distinguishes church planting from maybe other types of quote-unquote missionary works that some other organizations do? And again, we're not trying to put anybody down, but we just want to make a clear distinction that what you're doing is definitely distinct and different than what some other groups do. Sure. The, the word missions is very broadly used, and missionary is not a word found in Scripture. And so there's a lot of different ideas and meaning associated with that. So let me tell you what our vision statement is, and that, should, that would probably answer your question. The vision of our ministry is to bring the gospel and the word of God, the Bible, to a people that have no access to them, plant a church among them, nurture the church to maturity, and see them, to go on, see them go on to plant other churches. So it's evangelizing, discipling to the point where, as you see in 2 Timothy 2, 2, the things that you have learned from me and trust these things, the faithful men who are able to teach others also, that's happening. Generational discipleship where they don't need me, an outsider, to be their pastor, but they have their own elders who are training, teaching, discipling, and raising up the next generation. So it's it, where it can come full circle. So evangelism, discipleship to the point where there's a local church with all the elements as described in Scripture that is able to reproduce themselves. Excellent. And obviously, that's the goal that we're working for in our churches in America as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, to our discredit, we, we leave a lot of that work up to the pastor himself uh, to do all the discipleship, to do all the teaching, to do all the kind of works of the ministry, which really ought to be done by the saints. And that's resulted in a lot of burned out pastors and churches that in America seem to be contracting instead of expanding. How can you work to prevent that? Same thing from happening in PNG. One of the things is we want to, we want to teach and model what we believe to be the, the biblical model of a plurality of eldership. Uh, from the very beginning, there will, there, there's not a professional pastor. Now, I don't mean they're not supported. Mm-hmm. We'll encourage them biblically to support their own pastors. In those contexts, it probably looks like working on their gardens for them, providing food, things like that. But that um, from the very beginning, it's always the elders who are leading the church. And so that alone, it prevents it from resting on one person's shoulders. Another thing, they have a huge advantage that we don't have. We, if you were to line up the world's cultures in an order of individualistic versus community-oriented, America would fall on the extreme end of individualism. And, yeah, and I true. knew that before, but until I lived in an extremely community-oriented culture, I don't think I really appreciated how individualistic we are here. When we first came back to America, I was driving around Phoenix, and I was driving in the HOV lane, high occupancy vehicle. you got to have two or more people in it. And there were thousands of people on this highway with one person in their car. And I bet it was 0.001% of the cars could even drive in the hub lane. And I thought, it's not wrong. It was just, wow, this is a huge barrier for the American church. We're supposed to live as a body, depending on each other, interdependent, loving each other, serving each other. But to be successful in America requires you to be extremely independent, even to the point of you don't even drive with other people. And, yeah. and, and again, I'm not saying, oh, bad America, bad America. I'm saying it's very, it's vivid to me. That is a huge challenge for the American church to come to maturity, to overcome. You have to be counterculture, and it will cost you greatly to live in community in America. And it manifests itself in like a bunch of silly ways. Like we've both been in church business meetings where everybody wants to have a say on like what copy machine the mm-hmm. church buys. Mm-hmm. You know, like, all right, we, do we want the Xerox or the Canon? Everybody put it to a vote, you know? And it's like, wait a minute, somebody should just 
do the research and buy the coffee machine. We don't need to bring that before everybody. Mm -hmm. But because of the individualism that you talk about, everybody feels like their opinion should count. Mm -hmm. And so they should get to choose whether they want the Canon or the Xerox, you know, that's how it plays out in American churches some way. And I'm not, you know, we're not trying to be super critical of that, but Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a reality in American churches. And so I'm glad to hear that it will be, easier to deal with that kind of a thing in PNG. It's just hard for me. Okay, I've been a pastor for seven years now, um, and I've talked to you for a long time, but it's just hard for me to imagine a more communal society mm-hmm. than the one that we live in. Like, I think our church is really good about community, mm-hmm. but it's probably poor in re- in its communal aspects compared to someplace like PNG. Yeah, and, and every culture d- dictates a lot of what it means to live in community. Um, in PNG, there are very, very few specialists. When you go to the village, virtually everyone has the same job. Wow. Well, and that, they're gardeners. You know, when you go to the village, they work gardens, they hunt the, you know, wild animals, and they work on their houses. And that's just what you do. And so there's way more opportunity for it. And that's what I mean. It's not that they're inherently more noble people, um, just like we're not inherently more noble. We're all the same, made from one blood. Um, but they, there's less barriers to maturity in that aspect. There's a Japanese saying that says that the nail that lifts his head will be hammered down. There's mm-hmm. ugly sides to community orientation too. Um, it's, not, it's not good to go against the community. And so sure. if the community is making decisions that are in, unbiblical, or if the Christian presence is the minority, uh, it will be very costly to mm-hmm. follow Christ. Wow. That's a good uh, reminder then of the other side of the benefits sure. of community. Yeah, you know, I, the peer pressure aspect of don't violate what our standards and our norms are. Right. It's never the individual first, always the community first, no matter what it costs you. So it's better for the community, for this arranged marriage, to have you, a believing woman, marry an unbelieving uh, wife-beating man. Well, that's better for the community, so that's what you should do. That's going to be costly if you're going to follow the scriptures in that area. Wow. Um, oh, I was going to say something, and I forgot it, but... Uh, oh, I remember. I've seen a lot of people go to the foreign field for short-term trips or medium-length trips, and they come back, and they come back with a real disdain or animosity or resentment towards America. And I think that that, and I encourage anybody who's had that experience um, to recognize that as a very immature view. Um, we are not better than them, and they're not better than us. I think the right view is not, oh, we're terrible here in America, and everyone else is more noble. I think the right view is to whom much is given, much is expected. And so I don't resent the fact when I came back that I could go to a grocery store with 20 different kinds of cereal. Rather, I say, wow, Lord, look how you have blessed America and American Christians. We are so responsible to serve other people. And I think that's a healthier, more mature view. And there is, people are people under the curse, struggling without the Lord, in need of the Savior, and what the church looks like fundamentally will be the same, but in its expressions, its cultural expressions of biblical truth will be different all over the world. And um, we need to use scripture as the standard and not our cultural preferences or feelings or emotions. I really appreciate you sharing that. You don't maybe know this because maybe you haven't listened to the recent episodes, but the last two episodes I've talked about have been uh, how to define the truth and truth set free from its Judeo-Christian, uh, Judeo-Christian moorings or, or birthplace. And um, you know, when you look at the truth, and you think about how we have the same truth, but it's expressed in different ways. It just, it glorifies God and it puts us down and, and 
helps us to understand we just we're just, we're not it. Mm-hmm. Right. Know? Loving your it. neighbor looks. You have to love your neighbor everywhere as a Christian. But how you love your neighbor looks very different in PNG from America. Um, providing for your family looks very different in PNG than it does here. The principle doesn't change. The expression of it is very different in the different cultures. And we need to be careful not to import American Christianity over there or over there to here. Absolutely. Amen. Well, Craig, I want to thank you for your time. I know we're short. We got to get going. So can you tell people how to contact you if they want to be involved in your ministry? Sure. Um, the best place would be to go on our website. It's newfields, N-E-W-F-I-E-L-D-S, newfields.wordpress.com. And uh, there's lots of contact information, pictures, videos, uh, bio, all that kind of stuff there. Um, any email address you want to give them if they want to contact you personally? Sure. Or- it's Craig, like Craig T. Nelson, C-R-A-I-G, M as in Martin, N-O-Y-E-S at Hotmail, CraigMNoyce at Hotmail.com. All right. Craig, any final words that you want to say? Uh, I was just talking to a pastor this week who uh, is 94 years old, still pastoring. He was giving wisdom to my six-year-old daughter, and uh, he said, you know what? Uh, if, if you do nothing else, be faithful to the Lord and you won't go wrong. And that really stood out to me. Um, if, if all these missions plans fall apart and I'm crippled and I just have a miserable life the rest of my life, if I stay faithful to the Lord, it will have been successful here or over there. So I'd share that. Well, praise God. Thanks for that wonderful attitude, and thank you for your time, Craig. Thank Appreciate you, Appreciate it very much.